When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobek, and I'm a PhD candidate in sociocultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. I am thrilled to welcome Charles William Johns to the show today. Mr. Johns is a visiting lecturer at Goldsmiths, University of London. His publications include The Neurotic Turn, Malchus, and Outlook. Today, we are discussing his new book entitled Object-Oriented Dialectics, Hegel, Heidegger, and Harman, which was published in 2022 with Mimesis International. Mr. Johns, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. What was your inspiration for writing this book? Um, I've always been interested in the ontological options of materialism and idealism and their differences. I think there should be something speculative in both these discourses because, for example, regarding epistemology up until only recently, in a sense, um, a type of critical idealism always wins, what Mayasu calls correlationism. Uh, a kind of tautology, in a sense, um, it seems that we come to acquire knowledge through the capacity that we have for it. In a sense, this is Kant's great critical turn. It's the same as saying what we bring to bear on the world is our reality for us. But for knowledge, awareness, realisation, to be less stymied by subjective conditions and predilections, for it to imagine a form of objectivity or truth outside of these conditions, demands some form of speculative scope that Hegel has succeeded in doing beyond any other philosopher. I.e. that the realisation or awareness of reality's own processes or objects as a reflection of itself as real, is something either built into that process or endlessly reflecting back on itself retrospectively, such as how Hegel describes not only historical stages of consciousness, the dialectic, but also space and time itself, that time preserves what happens within it and brings itself to bear on its present concrete moment and possible future scenario. Um, There's definitely an aspect of reinserting human subjectivity back into larger enabling conditions or an engulfing system so as to dissolve the human world dichotomy but at the same time if the movement of the internal trajectory of logical reality is expressed through human thought as continuity as a kind of naturalism even this movement into conceptual realization in the human is described as a hugely transformative paradigm shift Now, this is the problem of the transcendental, as it's called traditionally, philosophically. Can objectivity really be reduced to the operation of synthesis in human beings? I think the realist would say no. Or can it be reduced to one-dimensional operations of matter? And I think the realist would say no to that. So the commitments I'm describing 
in object oriented dialectics that drove the book was 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 this kind of alternative to the either or of refusing a kind of solipsistic purely Kantian framework <clears throat> of the subjective transcendental, but also refusing the kind of non-philosophical findings of a scientific materialism. Um, and this led to my empathy with Hegel and Harman, at least Heidegger later, but he's more obscure. But Hegel, for the reasons I sketched out above, uh, but for Harman, it was his theory of undermining and overmining, which reflects the same kind of problematic I'm explaining. An object cannot be reduced downwards to what it's composed of, for example, atomism, but it can neither be reduced upwards to conditions of subjectivity, uh, bundles of quality, empiricism theories, how we identify objects within a web of uses, Heidegger calls equipmentality. So this is already sharing the same sentiment that both idealism and materialism aren't helpful in this scenario, at least traditional versions. Uh, realism is perhaps the best term we can use, but a realism that is not fettered by constant falsification, scientific realism, social realism. So it's appropriate to call it a speculative realism. I think both Hegel and these uh, speculative realists, um, the speculative aspect of both Hegel and Harman is that there is a sense of the real which is not reducible and in fact cannot even emerge when we think of the universe in purely materialist or idealist terms. Of course, their conclusions are very different, but let us remember that although the real in Hegel is disclosed in human, what he says, self-consciousness, self-realization, as the universality of synthetic categories, this still relies on or coexists with certain physical, historical, natural conditions. And regarding Harmon, although the real object is withdrawn and unconscious in the sense that we assume that the majority of objects in the cosmos aren't conscious, animal or human minds. There is still a subtle interplay of the sensual, which is a type of prehension, what Harman calls polypsychism, a type of awareness here showing that material processes and some nuanced version of awareness, it's also in Whitehead too, this type of theory, both must be included in a more complex culmination of the real. Um, I'll just finish quickly with, with this. Uh, last passage. Finally, what Hegel and Harman have in common is their phenomenological method, which really interested me. Both philosophers start with an analysis of objects, if we consider Hegel's phenomenology of spirit at least, and reach ontological conclusions from this initial analysis. And both conclusions have a similar attitude. The distinctions found in the object, and my relation to an object, relation being a, an important word here, a key word, are real distinctions found everywhere else in the world. For Hegel, this is the existence of the object through through the other, uh, the being through us, what he sees as one aspect of, of the contradiction of, of the object, essence as contradiction. There, there are many contradictions, positive contradictions in Hegel. And for Harman, he sees what he, what he terms tensions in the objects, real and central objects and their qualities, as well as these tensions being deeper than time and space itself. Time and space are derivative of these deeper tensions, and Hegel would say the same. Space, Time and space are derivative of deeper tensions between being and non-being. Heidegger, for me, is just an interesting character when it comes to Hegel, because he said that the dialectic was a philosophical embarrassment, which is really interesting. And uh, he's written a slim book on Hegel, um, on Hegel's phenomen phenomenology of the spirit, He's arguing that Hegel thinks of time 
the, the historical stages at least is 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 indifferent to the stages of Dasein. So the stages of Dasein is obviously I would call it subjective, but he, you know it's an existential feeling. It's not some kind of social political other thing. And he has this problem with this, but that's far from Hegel's point. Hegel doesn't think that at all. He thinks there's a kind of connection between three things. There is historical contingency. There is a type of logical unfolding. All things will unfold in a certain logical way, whatever they might be and however they come onto the situation. But then there's also the human being who, who is constantly within those two poles and changing them. So for me, Hegel's uh, Heidegger's arguments a bit moot, um, and uh, this made me think about Heidegger as an object-oriented thinker, because when I read, when when you think of the title "Being in Time," you th- when you before you read it, you think, "Wow, this is going to be great! You're going to have all this horizons of temporality." But actually, when you read it chapter to chapter, you don't read you don't really get anything about this time or this openness of space the way you do with some other philosophers, you get the difference between readiness to hand and present to hand. And these two movements of being stuck in a project or in a horizon of being and then theoretical analysis of that, that's all you're really going to get. Um, and uh, for me, this is a kind of a objectification or a reduction of time into those two registers. So I was really interested to think about because with Harmon, he he always talks about the sensual as the mo- the movement of of translating a real object. You can only do this through the sensual. You, you know, two real objects can never can never encounter one another. So perhaps Heidegger is Heidegger's philosophy of Dasein is 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 trying to speak about an anth- an anthropological relation to a real um, space and time that's always sensual. And this sensual for human beings is anxiety and its projects. And that became really interesting for me. So you've organized the book into three chapters, one on Hegel, one on Harman, and then one on Heidegger. I'd like to start where you start, which is with Hegel. Could you talk a little bit about your reading of Hegel specifically and how it differs with other perhaps more mainstream readings of Hegel? Yes. Um, I'm thinking of two reasons off the top of my head. One is quite complex that I might have to come back to, which is, for me, the di- lots of people talk about the dialectic purely in subjective sense. Um, and I'm very interested in the part of the dialectic, the, the triad of um, logical categories that Hegel starts with, which is being and non-being. I mean, you know, Hegel's always looking for opposition and differences that there's never self-identical being. So, of course, he says, okay, there's this thing that we call being, that philosophers have called being, but that must be, well, what's this other? What's the opposite? So so the very first abstract, very difficult and abstract question is, what is this relation if it has two sides between being and non-being? And he concludes that becoming is the mediation of the two. And um, what's interesting here, in a speculative realist sense at least, is that what Hegel calls being is, is in fact becoming. It's in fact the determination between these two categories. You can never actually have being in itself or non... You never get there. 
you always have the that's what negation and determination is you're always getting the two relating to each other in some sense never by themselves and what i found interesting about this especially in terms of singularity which is very popular at the moment is that maybe hegel is talking about one specific actualization of these very em- empty logical categories of being and non-being i imagine being and non-being could be applied to lots of things theoretically um that don't exist in our universe um it's a very loose category so i was interested in this idea that we are in fact in the becoming of these two abstract categories and this is a sense his this is his sense of eternity between between the two logical categories um and um so i started there and i wanted to try and map that onto the world of objects in a kind of naive sense so what's the object doing well the object exists but it will perish uh, it might die if we're talking about philosophies of finitude people like heidegger are very obsessed with this idea so already you have a kind of tent you, you, the object is suspended in a sense between these two categories um and um and i found that really interesting um as a way that to think about identity and non-identity in the object and um and how and how objects are interacting with other objects um so they're already in this they're already in this state of of, of suspension in a sense uh, of always being caught between the two of this being and non-being and i wondered well, can that explain some of the characteristics of an object in the first place, metaphysically? And then I wondered, well, could we talk about things like sublation in in terms of objects sublating other objects? So, for example, we have pieces in a whole that work together and we have a whole of a piece that seems to be quite autonomous. Hegel talks about this a lot. And uh, that might sound abstract, but when we think about, say, a part in nature, I don't know, a leaf in nature, a tree in nature, this can immediately feel external and very much um, an external object out there in the world that is autonomous. But, but, but Hegel tries to embed that piece into a whole, for example, of nature itself. And then, and then the objects are kind of internal to a larger sense of nature. So we're getting this flip all the time and of sublation. And, and Hegel, Hegel's idealistic claim here actually is that nature is basically waiting for humans to identify it as what it is. So then another form of sublation occurs. So basically there's all these movements happening already in, in Hegelian terms prior to human subjectivity and consciousness that I just felt like I'd like to try and talk about or at least experiment with. Um, and then there was a third type of Hegel um, that I'm interested in. And um, I, I think I've forgotten it. <laughs> um, I might come back to that. But those are my two interests. Basically, the Hegel of the philosophy of nature Hegel of the philosophy of nature, Hegel in the logic of this initial huge dialectic between being and non-being. Um, and then, oh, and then the third real interest is, even though I'm talking about a, a pre-human uh, topology of objects, you have to take very seriously what Hegel means when consciousness comes onto the scene. Because 
he talks about nature as a series of syllogisms. As I said in my first in first answer, the idea there's a teleological notion. This doesn't people mis- misinterpret this and think this is everything becomes perfect. No, it's very simple operation. It, and, I, and I explained it in time. Time has a way of preserving what happens in it, just as we have memories and we move through that. Uh, those memories or those instances will kind of aid what happens in the present. So that is a tele- teleological notion, and. So Hegel sees the development of, of logical categories happening and determining all the time. And it just so happens that when human beings come on the scene, they have these synthetic categories. He gets this from Kant, Hegel. And instead of the synthetic categories simply being um, the culmination of human experience, he thinks that what these synthetic categories, when we can identify everything, that's actually reflected in the whole world. These 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 categories now exist, and they're in reality, and they're the perfect uh, example of the real. So taking that on board, I think a lot of Hegelians, contemporary Hegelians, want to dismiss this part, perhaps because people might see Hegel as purely idealistic again, and they want to try and keep Hegel in this materialist uh, trajectory of Zizek and you know, I know it's a, a neo-materialism and he'd probably complain, you know, but um, so those three things I'm interested in confronting, yeah, in the book. And you also write on page 74 that too little attention has been paid to the phenomenological side of Hegel, right? So could you maybe talk about that as well? Yeah. Um, again, that statement sounds kind of bombastic at first, but in the phenomenology of spirit, yeah, he starts looking at objects. So you suggest this is a very conventional phenomenology. But what happens is, as most people know who have read it, it moves from the idea of sense certainty of objects to a possible science where the contradictions found in the objects, um, how a quality can't be pinpointed, individuality can't be properly represented, all these things. Um, another one would be how can an object be both appearance and non-appearance at the same time? All these distinctions of movements become saturated into basically these objects that we start off phenomenologi- phenomenologically uh, describing show us the contradiction, the universal contradictions of reality itself. Of course, this is complete opposite of Kant, but the point is, then we just get into a world where, and I think this is where Harman's work becomes really interesting, we kind of forget about the objects then, the very particular glass and the hat and the whatever it is, because they're simply kind of, they simply kind of stand in for and express these distinctions. But there are passages in the phenomenology of spirit where Hegel is... I think he's a philosopher of imminence and he explains in the stages of history that certain confrontations with objects completely change the stages of world spirit. He talks about the printing press, French Revolution. There are specific encounters with objects and um, I think this is important to to remember again that it's not just some kind of uh, univocity where logic and the dialectic is expressing itself through every object. A specific circumstance, a specific object could change the whole situation of how we see things. Um, And I think Badiou is interesting here because he talks about the fidelity to an event. 
And I always wonder if this is because he shares the same empathy with me, with Hegel's very close readings of objects, that that you must have, that it is possible to have fidelity to an object and for that object to change, for example, political circumstances. Or So that's what I mean when I kind of provocative, provocatively say people are forgetting that Hegel is a phenomenologist. In the introduction to the book, you also write that there are effectively four aims that you're trying to reach. What are they and could you explain them? Yes. So the first is an attempt to synthesize. This is the quote from passage from my book. The first aim is to synthesize two hitherto unrelated areas of philosophy. So the absolute idealism of Hegel and the relentless realism of Graham Harmon's object-oriented ontology with the aim to show how the process of the dialectic does not have to be bridled to the former and can, ses- and can successfully account for the existence of objects in a form of realism irreducible to human consciousness. I think we've basically been talking about that already when I talk about how I see the dialectics of, of objects prior to human consciousness and those categories already, that there's, there's categories and contradictions which no way start... Uh, are manufactured in the human brain or the mind or embodied phenom- phenomenological embodiment. They're, all, they're already there. It's, it's all in the encyclopedia for Hegel. Um, so the way that objects interact with each other in Hegel, as I said before, there's a theory of sublation. Maybe that needs to be talked about a bit more. But what I'm trying to say is, and this will become clear later how the relation to Graham Harmon and bring them together. Hegel has a really interesting account of mechanical, chemical and teleological processes um, of objects. And they're not distinct. These are stages that all objects will acquire at some point. Um, And so his idea of objects confronting each other are are stages of understanding this. Um, So some may have merely external equivalents, one object interacting with another one without any sense of initial identity of the object. There could be a chemical uh, relation, and he talks about chemical difference as as this kind of mad internal differentiation when, when different you know atoms and par- particles m- may collide, and there's a differentiation almost impulsively without any actual model of it. Um, and then the teleological is basically the relation between mechanical and the chemical, external, mere external and internal. And he thinks this is is reconciled in purpose. When something's purposive, it's both internally and externally purposive, he thinks. It basically almost conflates the two, where they're both doing the same job. Um, and this type of, uh, of kind of theory of relations and um, one, uh, for example, um, I think I've spoken to you, spoken about it already, which is a, a form of interiority can be externalized and that external object can then be internalized into another set and element, for example, into the earth is a very general idea. And this is always happening, uh, a piece fitting into a whole or the whole of a piece. The whole of a piece, what I mean by that is that's when Hegel thinks that something doesn't really need to change that much, when it's just almost at its best performative function. I guess you could call the subject a whole of a piece, uh, in a sense. Um, 
And then regarding Harmon, Harmon has a... So there's a kind of transparency for, for Hegel there that things seem to kind of move into one another quite easily. Um, at the same time, he maintains interiority and exteriority. Now, what does that mean? It means, it's quite a difficult point, but you can't have pure interiority or pure exteriority. Um, what would that even, how do we even think that? Everything that is in- interior must have some kind of form or external expression some way. Anything that's purely external, uh, for example, an object, must have an interiority. So I think both Hegel and Harman agree with this point. Um, so interior and exterior can meld into each other, but as categories, they can never be completely, something can never be completely external and completely internal. So that's really interesting to me. And um, the way Harman solves, well, he kind of solves it by maintaining that uh, in a way that um, that you have a, a realm of set the sensual, the relations, the mediations, but always a non-relational residue, which is the object. It's withdrawn from relations to an extent withdrawn from access withdrawn from from present at hand um and it negotiates itself objects negotiate themselves very differently to hegel but but they're still both very focused on these object object relations so with hegel with Harmon, you can have something called a central object which is mediated by a human being it could be you know just a you look out your window and that's a central object you're mediating this uh, these other things which are which are uh, which can't be reducible to that experience but as soon as you have it it's a unique according to Harmon, maybe he's changed his theory here but as soon as you have that unique experience you can share it with other people and it's communicable and um and therefore it has something real to it already and it might be translated differently like a like chinese whispers so in a sense he's saying there are always real qualities to a central object um so um it's too difficult to unpack now but but this is why so i'm interested in this kind of pre-human or you know post-human in a way um categorization of object object interactions in a much more dare i say like complex or sophisticated manner than what the natural sciences and traditional mm, philosophers, I guess, of uh, of empiricism, of um, you know um, Heidegger's pragmatism. Uh, he does have the withdrawal element, but I don't feel like he talks enough about the complexity of object-object in- interactions personally. So there's so the thing we can get into now i think is is graham Harmon himself and your reading of graham Harmon also takes a different approach than most object-oriented ontologists right especially when you describe Harmon's theory of tensions between objects and qualities as dialectical could you maybe talk about your uh maybe we could call it idiosyncratic reading of Harmon? yes well i think again maybe i've i've answered this question in the last one which is I was interested in the irreducibility of interior, the, the categories of interiority and exteriority while still allowing them somehow to coexist. And my answer to that was this idea that 
interiority can become exteriority and vice versa, but nothing can be purely internal or purely external. The translation had to occur from a form of exteriority that still somehow is complicit with its interiority. There's something that the, the, the first, the, the passage that I use at the beginning of my book is when he says um, something like um, the essence of an object is determined by outside entities. And I thought, what? Because when you first read hey, uh, Harmon, I'm getting the names mixed up, you know, a kind of caricatured reading would be, no, you have this deep, this metaphysics of interiority, a deep into nothing can get to it. So as soon as you hear this essence is made by external objects, I mean, how does that not put you in a dialectical position? Because there you have the coexistence of, I call it, um, not only the coexistence of internal and external, but really... Harmon's in itself, to me, is the non-relational element. That's what I believe is, is, is in itself, whether it's of, of a chair or of a building or whatever. The in itself is the non-relational element of an object. But it doesn't just stay that same non-relational identity. It comes into contact. This is Harmon's theory of um, polypsychism. It comes into contact with things centrally. And sometimes it's just a central encounter and nothing is done of it. Just as I look at a tree and nothing actually changes. But sometimes, I think this is a allure, some, sometimes things happen. <laughs> and it's the hard part is trying to really pinpoint this, where the possibility of a central encounter affecting a real object. And I use terms like... Um, infiltration infiltration how does the how does the object infiltrate the ex- external somehow and i think it's a bit like a residue in between your um your nails somehow get something gets stuck in there between this non-relation relation and that part that the object subsumes somehow becomes another non-relational element um and it changes its op- that real withdrawn object so it's not platonic in any sense. There aren't these essences that stay the same. There is just this kind of operation where non-relational objects can change through this, what I call dialectic, between relation and non-relation. And that leads me to a point, again, about the two, unfortunately, not just Harmon, but I believe they're two very unique philosophers in, in the sense that they include relation and non-relationality in reality. Um which sounds a bit bizarre. What does that mean? Harmon says that space is both relational and non-relational. Um, you can have space between things, but you can also have space which is withdrawn. Hegel does the same. Hegel says that there is being and non-being um, imminent to our in, imminent to the becoming, because because becoming is the mediation of the two. So one can definitely formulate this as uh, non-being as a kind of non-relational element or termination of a relation and the being part as, as, as the kind of relational existence and it's bringing the two together. So I think this is really interesting. Um, I'm thinking more with Harmon now I've written loads, but I'm trying to not go there. Um, I think for me, the most important thing to take from Harmon is this undermining and overmining, but also the polypsychism against the panpsychism. So when Harmon talks about object-object relations, especially when he talks about occasionalism, 
he makes this great point where he thinks that the German idealists invert a type of occasion, occasionalism, and they say that the that the source for where the interactions between objects lies is in the mind. So Hume would say it's a continuity, contiguity, resemblance, cause and effect. So what happens is what allows objects to interact with each other before it may have been God or whatever now becomes this, this locale in human subjectivity. That can't be right. And Harmon is right to say it can't be right. So you have this new mysterious place now that, well, how, how would objects react or interact or encounter each other beyond this type of phenomenal, very specifically located form of access to objects? And I think, for me, this is against panpsychism very explicitly because panpsychism would say something like consciousness, all objects have some form of consciousness in them. And I wonder, that would that mean then that all objects have to have a conscious, to, to a degree, a conscious relation? For me then, all relations on the same footing, as Harmon says, it's actually changed into all relation there's only one relation for all objects and that one relation is is a conscious relation to some form and i think that gets us away from the most interesting part of harman which is that no we don't really don't know how um cotton and, and a flame interact i mean we see it in our way but there could be a completely different way and the pluralism of those types of object inter- interactions becomes a kind of univocity or a monism of objects interacting through a conscious relate some some form of relation that is conscious um so um i'm not completely against panpsychism being brought back into it i mean i know that you know nikki and um john are inter- writing a book about that and i hope that we have more time to talk about the distinctions but that's where I'm at at the moment. Um, but obviously it's interesting because I would say that, ironically, Hegel does do this. When at the beginning, in the philosophy of nature, you have, as I've talked about, mechanical, chemical and teleological relations. And in fact, he doesn't give much away here. These could be very different relations. The way a mechanical relation is might be different to a chemical. And the way that the teleological relation might be different too. It might not be this cause and effect, resemblance, continuity that Hume's talking about. So there there is scope already for a kind of pluralistic perspectivism going on. But as soon as human beings come onto the scene, unfortunately, it is true that, that the reality of objects become expressions of logical categories and develop logically. And that relation is one relation, type of relation. It's called the dialectic. There's not, there's not, it doesn't. What happens is you don't have millions of different dialectics. You just have the dialectic. So it is a type of university. Um, and even more than that, I would suggest that he doesn't. Hegel doesn't simply reduce object-object relations to this one relation of dialectical relation. He also reduces it even further to saying that the ideal form of relations is phenomenal. He believes that things are trying to manifest themselves in a certain way to realize themselves the only way to realize themselves is to have a relation of consciousness to itself or representation through the other or through human beings so um i can in that respect i can see why Harmon and hegel are very different but i think it's still important to maybe the key is to go before that element i don't know if that answers your question again but 
This book is so interesting. It really kind of broke a lot of ways that I was thinking about all three thinkers, right? Hegel, Heidegger, and Harman. I'm very excited to see kind of where this then develops in the future. And maybe that can bring me to my final question for you, which is a tradition on the New Books Network, which is to ask what you're working on now. Um, I'm working on an edited book um, myself and Hilam Ben-Susan, who uh, has written some interesting works. Um, you should check out. Um, it's called Speculative Realism Now. Oh, there you have it, Indexicalism, yes. Fantastic book. Um, and um, basically, it's it first started off as a kind of retrospective, or oh, let's think about 15 years after this 2007 conference in Speculative Realism, where it's become. But then we realised that we were doing it a disservice because it's still there, very much there, in my work, Hillan's work, lots of other people's work. So we decided, no, we're just going to have a book that represents the, you know, the the energy of, of speculative realism still now, regardless of being in the face of critics and all sorts. So in that book, we have some really interesting figures, um, Maurizio Ferraris, um, Slavoj Žižek, and we have interviews with two two or three of the original four members of the speculative realism movement. Um and, uh, and and that's been a lot of work. Some of the essays are absolutely incredible, and that should be coming out on Bloomsbury um, soon. I know that sounds very vague. Um, and then whilst that's happening, um, I'm working on a book for Palgrave Macmillan, which is called Hegel and Speculative Realism, which is basically kind of the culmination of... <laughs> of the last five years of my work, looking at the specific four speculative realists. And, you know, obviously it, it almost feels like a object oriented dialectics too, you know, strikes back. Um, but it's looking at Brazier because Brazier has a lot of um, interest in Hegel, some really interesting lectures on Hegel. Um, Ian Hamilton Grant, there's a really interesting relation because obviously he's more she- pro Schellingian. And um, I think it's important to try and understand that relation between the two, uh, Hegel and Schelling, in that context. Um, I don't know if that's been written about that much uh, via Ian Hamilton Grant. And um, a look at Mayasu. Mayasu specifically interests me regarding Hegel because I feel like it's like a kind of the elephant in the room that he doesn't really want to. He's got lots to say about these correlationists and when it comes to Hegel, he obviously calls him an absolute correlationist, but he's also very pro-Hegel in a lot of ways. Um, and he also has, I would dare say, a one-dimensional version of Hegel. I think there's much more radical contingency in Hegel than one would admit. Um, and especially regarding my idea of this, when I talked about the um, being, very quickly, the being and non-being, the original dialectic, this may suggest that the becoming that we exist in is one form of correlation of being and non-being, the actualization of, and this might allow us to, to, to say, yes, we are correlated to our conditions of possibility, but there may be other correlations out there, or other conditions of possibility, other accesses, activations of being and non-being. Um, I've been very interested in, I've been writing a lot on uh, Andre Lind multiverse theory, where he talks about, 
causally unconnected universes and how it's possible to have a kind of occasionalism of universes that have completely different laws and completely, you know, impossible to ever have an analogy in any form, any representational sense or anything. Um, so yeah, so that's the book there. Um, I think that's it. I think if I did, if I was writing any more, I'd probably just collapse with exhaustion. Uh, so yeah, that's what I'm working on at the moment. The book is Object Oriented Dialectics, published in 2022 with my Mises International. Mr. Johns, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure.